We'll hear argument now, number 95-1201, Vicki Lopez versus Monterey County. Mr. Avila, you may proceed whenever you... Am, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The issue before you is whether a district court, having enjoined an unprecleared plan, can then order that unprecleared plan into effect. The resolution of this issue is controlled by Clark versus Romer. There the court unanimously held that an election based upon unprecleared election changes must be enjoined. Here, the district court ignored Clark, suspended the operation of Section 5, and ordered the implementation of the unprecleared plan. Do we know that Section 5 necessarily applies here? Yes, it does apply. There can be no serious dispute that Section 5 applies to judicial elections in Monterey County. The uh, but uh, but the, how, how about the fact this is basically a state statute and Monterey, is, the state of California, isn't covered? We are dealing with county ordinances which have consolidated judicial districts starting back in 1969, at the date after uh, Monterey County was made subject to the Section 5 preclearance provisions, the applicable state statutes refer and incorporate the consolidations that occurred at the county level. So we had a series of county ordinances, in fact a total of about 11, that started out with two municipal court districts and seven justice of the peace court districts on November 1st of 1968, and ultimately it winded up with a county-wide election system uh, in, in, in 1983. But I guess you stipulated with the county that it is impossible to prepare an election plan that doesn't conflict with state law and still comply with the Voting Rights Act. That is correct. And if that's the case, then how do you avoid challenging California state law? Well, at this particular point, the, there are still... And how do you do that under Section 5? I mean, it's a very confusing case. and. Um, I really would appreciate your addressing this inquiry that the Chief Justice also inquired about. Although we are dealing with state statutes, we are also dealing with county ordinances and the consolidations of judicial districts that occurred over a period of time. Section 5 requires the county ordinances as well as the state statutes that specifically refer to events or consolidations of these judicial districts in Monterey County. And these state statutes specifically referred to Monterey County. Well, but if if it is the state statute that is the operative law, 
uh, I think it's 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 just not a case where where the Voting Rights Act uh, apply. Surely you wouldn't make the argument if it was the other way around. If a county ordinance uh, uh, mentioned by reference some some state law and then applied uh, applied the same rule as a matter of county law, you wouldn't say that the fact that it referred to state law lets the county off the hook. That's correct, uh, Your Honor, but... I don't know why it works the other way here. If this is state law we're talking about, the state isn't a covered unit. The reason why it doesn't work is because here, Monterey County has the authority to consolidate judicial districts, and it exercised that authority under state law. And so as a result of those consolidations, there were changes which had to be pre-cleared under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Even though you may have had a state statute that implicated those consolidations, it nevertheless specifically referred to the consolidations in Monterey County. And in this particular instance, we have a series of county ordinances which the district court back in 1993 found had not been pre-cleared and could not be implemented. And um, until those particular county ordinances are approved, the state statutes which are dependent and interrelated with those county ordinances can't come into did, effect. Did Mr. state law require Monterey County to consolidate? It could, but it didn't in this particular case. And when we look at, so say, for example... Well, I mean, it either does or it doesn't. I, I'm just not clear whether state law requires consolidation of these uh, local judicial offices. The state laws that are under review in this particular case did not. The 1983 uh, state statute was contingent upon the consolidation of three judicial districts in Monterey County. And so it specifically referred to this event that was going to occur in Monterey County. So you take the position that the county, Monterey County was free to consolidate or not? That's and what, what is challenged here was Monterey County's uh, decision to consolidate. That is correct. Which was not mandated, according to you, by state law. Under the state laws that are under review, are not, they were not and mandated. And there's never been a determination that there is a substantive violation of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act? That is correct. Now, the only, uh, this, of course, is just not a merely a failure to pre-clear. We also have a situation here where after the district court found these ordinances subject to Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, Monterey County then filed a Section 5 judicial declaratory judgment action in Washington, D.C. And subsequent to that filing, it, uh, we intervened, and as a result of that intervention, as a result of discussions with, the, with uh, the Department of Justice, Monterey County decided that it could not meet its burden of demonstrating that several of these county ordinances did not have a retrogressive Well, it withdrew that suit, I guess. It did. It dropped the suit. And, and so that leaves us in a posture, as of now, there's been no finding of a substantive violation of Section 5. That is correct. Mr. Avila, you're not making an alternative argument, which I would have thought you would have made, and I'm, I'm beginning to think that I'm missing something, or you would, you would have made it. And, and the argument would be this. Section 5 refers to a jurisdiction which enacts uh, or which I, I think implements uh, a plan which has not been pre-cleared. So that even if the county took no independent action, and even if the county were doing nothing but administering state law, wouldn't the second clause of Section 5 pick it up so that it would require pre-clearment, even though it was, it was the result of state law and the state is not 
as an entire state a covered jurisdiction. Wouldn't wouldn't that be enough to to create the Section 5 violation? Yes, it would, uh, Your Honor. If you have a state statute that enables the county to take a particular course of action. Well, I'm not talking about enabling it to take a course of action. I'm saying if you had a state statute that required it to take a course of action, even though the state wasn't covered, and even though the county alone was a covered jurisdiction, by following that state law, the second clause of Section 5 would, would, uh, would require preclearance, wouldn't that's, it? That's correct. It but, would. but you say that the state law authorized but didn't require consolidation. Is that right? The 1983 state statute uh, was, was, in essence, based on a contingency of a consolidation of three judicial districts, which the county board of supervisors at that point authorized uh, and duly adopted an ordinance uh, consolidating these three judicial districts. Was but the county free uh, after the enactment of the state statute and after consolidating to go back to the pre-consolidation regime? It was not free under state law to go back to the status quo ante. And the reason why is because the justice of the peace courts were eliminated uh, in 1993 under a state proposition. And at the time of 1968, there were two municipal court districts and seven justice of the court, uh, justice of the peace of the court districts. And to go back to that uh, procedure uh, was deemed to be unfeasible by the district court. And for that reason, the district court found it compelling to, uh, to issue an order to require an election based on an interim plan for the June 1995 election. And it was also true that there was a state statute that required county-wide uh, courts. Isn't that correct? I'm, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Isn't there also a, statute that a state statute that requires that the courts be county-wide? Or am I wrong about that? Under the state statutes uh, and the Constitution, state Constitution, uh, you could have a county-wide municipal court district. Along, In addition to that, you could also have municipal court districts, several municipal court districts within a county, as long as they met certain criteria, as long as they didn't divide municipalities, as long as they contained over 40,000. Are there such counties in California where you have, unlike this county that now has just one district, are there counties in California that have multiple judicial districts? There are some counties in California that do have multiple court judicial districts. Uh, for example, Los Angeles County, Alameda County, uh, San Diego County. Uh, many of the large urban areas have munis multiple municipal court districts, and Monterey County, back in 1968, did in fact so have the state law that we're dealing with that ratified or approved the consolidations is not part of a statewide plan. It's just peculiar to this one covered county. Is that not right? I mean, that law that deals with the consolidation is not like the constitutional provisions that are also in this picture. That's correct. But to the extent that California approved what had been done by the county, that's peculiar to this one covered county. The state statute specifically refers to Monterey County. It ought, the state constitutional provision authorizes the legislature to create countywide uh, municipal court districts, uh, to create multiple uh, municipal court districts, if so desired. Uh, in, in fact, in, in, in some of these counties, you have... Uh, in San Diego County, for example, you have a municipal court district that, uh, in fact, uh, divides uh, municipal boundaries. So there are uh, various variations that are permitted under state law.
But as I, as I take it, what this case presents to us is not the question so much what the court should should have done or might have done, but the question of whether what it did do was wrong. And you're saying what it did do was per se wrong. Yes, Your Honor. It was clear error. Clear error. Yeah, and that's the only issue before us, I take it. If we agree with you, back it goes, and, and people will have to figure out what to do next. That's precisely our point. Uh, uh, if the court uh, uh, reverses the, the district court refusal to enjoin its unprecleared election change, then on remand, the district court would then be required to uh, conduct an evidentiary hearing to determine what alternatives should be implemented, because they can't go well, back to the Well, it's possible that the only thing before the court at the time it acted was the allegation that no preclearance had been obtained. And perhaps the only thing the court could do was just say, that's right, get it pre-cleared. Yes. That Nothing was one, else. That, no, that Nothing was, else. There were other alternatives that the district court could have explored. Well, I'm not sure there are. Like what? Well, I mean, at that stage, with no substantive violation of Section 5, what more can the court do except say, okay, get pre-clearance? Well, for one thing, the district court could have uh, continued to extend the terms uh, in order to permit... Well, even that isn't so clear, is it? Well, in this particular case, the district court did, after the issuance of this court's uh, stay, uh, did uh, extend the terms until further order of the district court and further order of this court. Are you actually disagreeing? I, I thought your position is they have to pre-clear. They didn't. And under Clark, what a district court is supposed to do when they don't pre-clear is say, hold everything. Nothing happens. No election, no nothing, until you go and pre-clear. Am I right? Or, yeah, ordinarily, that would be correct. Yeah. And isn't that what you want to happen here? That yes. They, and you're saying he didn't do that, but under Clark, he should have done it. Yes. You're sure. saying, but, but you have to add one, one fact to it. Uh, uh, extend the terms uh, of judges elected under, under a plan that the court believes may be unconstitutional. I mean, the court was concerned about the constitutionality uh, of the plan under which the judges current, currently sitting were elected, was it? Yes, it was, Your Honor. So that, that's a, a quite a significant factor as to whether a realistic option is, is to let those terms continue. Well, there was ample opportunity that was provided to the district court uh, in order to resolve and address that question. But your, your case, as I understand it, does not depend upon our so assuming, because all you want, in theory, and all, as I understand it, all that it would take for us to resolve this case and all that it would have taken for the district court to resolve the case was to order, just as Justice Breyer suggested a moment ago, no election under this plan. What happens next may be a very serious state problem, but that's not what you require the district court to get into. All you are asking from the district court is enjoin the election, enjoin the application of an unprecleared plan, period. Isn't that correct? That is, and that's all you want us to say. At this point, yes, it is, Your Honor. Uh, the reason why at some point, uh, maybe not at, at this particular juncture, but the, the, the reason why we're here is because there hasn't been preclearance uh, since 1969, and uh, the state and the county have not come forward with a proposed solution since 1993. But would you not agree that your position would be different if instead of the district judge, instead of saying, well, I think there may be a violation of equal protection under Miller and so forth, if the judge had held a hearing and found that the plan, in effect, was unconstitutional, then we'd have a different case, wouldn't we? That's correct. Of course, he did not do that, but he just sort of assumed it might be. And at a minimum, we wanted to have an evidentiary hearing so that we could present 
various alternatives, and the well, district court could then determine whether, in fact, the 1994 was unconstitutional. Then, then why did you the bring a complaint saying it's unconstitutional? I mean, why? You said you would like to have had a hearing, but as I understand it, and, and I may be wrong on this, you had no pleading before the court claiming uh, that the preceding plan was, in fact, a violation either of Section 2 or of the 14th Amendment. Uh, I think it's very important to point out that the plan that we're talking about is the 1994 pre-cleared plan, which was a, a proposed plan that was submitted by the appellants and the county to try to resolve this litigation. Yeah. And it is that plan that the district court uh, felt that after this court's uh, decision in Miller raised constitutional concerns. Well, and that's that's right. But that plan was limited uh, in, in its temporal scope, as that's I right. recall. That's correct. So once again, the only thing that the court had before it as a matter of, of pleading or complaint was a claim that in the absence of that interim pre-cleared plan, there was no pre-cleared plan, and therefore no election should be held. Isn't that correct? That's correct, John. Yeah. Do you know, as, yep. as in, in your uh, study of this, it seems to me over the last 30 or 40 years, it probably has come up before that some covered district had in place a plan that arguably is unconstitutional. Then they changed it. And the change has to be pre-cleared. But under Clark, you just keep the status quo until they pre-clear it, even if that status quo is arguably unconstitutional. That's correct. Has that situation ever come up before? Because uh, that would be a relevant precedent. Well, the, the typical procedure is to go back to the, the status quo, and you cannot yeah, challenge that status yeah, quo. You, can, you, you can. don't go back to it. You just say, that's it. Everything else is frozen. Now, is there instances where you can think of in your experience or research where maybe that status quo was arguably unconstitutional. But still, we want the D.C. Circuit deciding these things, not every district court in the country. Well, in the, uh, the, 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 the 10-year litigation that occurred in Con the Connor uh, versus Johnson, Connor versus Waller, uh, which started off as a one-person, one-vote violation, which, which there was established, in fact, a violation, and subsequent court proceedings dealt with remedial issues. And that would be the precedent that I would cite. I would like to, at this time, reserve my uh, time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Avila. Uh, Mr. Jenkins, we'll hear from you. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The three-judge court held that the county's electoral system contained voting changes covered by Section 5 that had never received preclearance. This court's precedents clearly required the district court to enjoin elections under that plan. Uh, as the court's questions have indicated, uh, first and foremost, a, a so-called local three-judge court's task is to determine whether changes ha are subject to preclearance, have been precleared, and if not, to enjoin elections uh, under an unprecleared plan. Uh, Justice Breyer, in, in response to your question, it has been frequently the case that the status quo ante was an unconstitutional or otherwise unlawful plan. For instance, uh, when Congress enacted the Voting Rights Act, it understood that a lot of the plans currently in effect would be unconstitutional uh, either under the 15th or 14th Amendment, uh, one person, one vote violations, and what have you, and that for Section 5 purposes, they could still serve uh, as a benchmark. Uh, Mr. Jenkins, isn't the problem that this isn't the status quo ante? Right. I mean, if we were going back to what it was when they had the district, um, whatever, it's the, the municipal districts and the, the justice districts, but here, it's not that 
we go back to what was and keep it, there is in practically for every every point of view you can't return. You can't go back to that old way. So there has to be a different way. Well, Justice Ginsburg, our contention is not uh, that the district court necessarily erred in rejecting a particular plan, but that the option that it chose of allowing elections to go forward under an unpreclared plan was impermissible under this court's decision. We do think that the district court had some remedial alternatives, some flexibility in determining what to do, uh, but that the course that it took uh, was un- an unlawful choice. Well, suppose, we? suppose there are two, two choices, uh, neither of which involves returning to the status quo. Suppose you cannot return to the status quo. One is to order preclearance, uh, and the other is to require elections under an unconstitutional plan based on race. Uh, which which of those do you take? Which is the lesser evil? Well, Your Honor, clearly I think if the district court had done the full-blown Miller versus Johnson analysis, determined that the 1994 interim plan was unconstitutional... Yeah, and let's, ass- let's assume that that was the case. Right. And if the only other choice was, if I understand your question, allowing uh, elections under an unpreclared plan, yeah. then I think uh, elections would have to go forward under the unpreclared plan. Uh, if the Constitution were to come into direct conflict with enforcement of Section 5, that would affect the outcome. But I think that's quite far afield from the situation that's presented here. Uh, as Jenkins, why, don't you, why doesn't your answer go this way? Uh, that, that given uh, the unconstitutionality on the one hand, uh, an unprecleared plan on the other, uh, that in fact everything has got to stop until somebody comes up uh, with a constitutional plan. Now that somebody may be the district court, if the district court has in fact had a complaint Register, uh, filed with it, saying the old plan is unconstitutional. The district court finds that it's unconstitutional. It finds no pre-cleared alternative to the unconstitutional plan. Then it's clear that the district court has got, absent uh, anybody's better idea, the district court has got the jurisdiction to fashion a plan. Isn't that the way out of the dilemma? I, I think that's correct, Justice Souter, but as I understood the hypothetical, the only two choices were an election under an unpreclared plan or an right. election under and an I, And I guess I'm saying you, you, shouldn't, have ex- you shouldn't have accepted the, the choices as being limited to the two because, because the, the third choice is simply file a complaint saying the old plan is unconstitutional, let the district court adjudicate it, and the district court has got remedial authority. Well, that's certainly correct under the situation that was actually presented in this case. There were a number of alternatives. One alternative could have been simply to uh, prevent prevent elections from going forward and to uh, order that incumbent judges remain in their posts pending preclearance of a permanent change. Uh, we don't know that the 1994 interim plan was in fact unconstitutional. And so I, I, I don't know why you give this sort of absolute answer rather than it depending on circumstances. I mean, it might be the case that the status quo ante was arguably unconstitutional. The judge has to decide whether to keep that while they go run and ple- pre-clear or produce a new interim plan. Suppose the only interim plan that he's presented with is uh, give the state just what it wants. Then his choice is we give the state just what it wants, or we proceed under the old status quo, which was arguably unconstitutional. I mean, I don't know whether which is which. Isn't it rather fact-specific and circumstance-specific? I think that's correct, Justice Breyer. Uh, Isn't it rather confusing case, and I think we're getting confused about what is the old status quo. I mean, nobody suggested that the old system with the justice court was unconstitutional. The question is, when they changed from that, was that in violation 
um, uh, Section 5. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. If I can be clear, there was a system that existed on November 1st, 1968, which has, has not been claimed to be unconstitutional, but which the district court thought would be difficult or unfeasible to, to uh, return to. Because it involved courts that no longer exist in the whole state of California, for one That's thing. correct. But I think before allowing elections under an unprecleared system, the district court was required, among other things, to analyze whether that system, the, the pre-existing 68 system, could have been adapted in some way to accommodate current circumstances. We think there were a number of remedial alternatives that were possible as Justice Breyer says, based on the facts of, of the case. Did, did the court have the power to impose any of these remedial alternatives on its own without first making the determination that the extant plan, which would otherwise just continue, was unconstitutional? Well, uh, we think so, Justice Scalia. I mean, uh, the 1994 interim plan was a one-time plan, and the elections had already been conducted under that plan. Uh, so there was a question as to what would be the, the further relief that would be ordered uh, so long as no pre permanent plan had been pre-cleared. I, th I think the local court had jurisdiction to make that consideration. Well, I'm not sure why, because the, the court has got jurisdiction to adjudicate a complaint that's brought in front of it. The complaint brought in front of it says this is an unpre-cleared plan. The court can adjudicate that. It says it is unpre-cleared. Don't use it. I don't see why the court, absent some further pleading before it, has got jurisdiction to do anything. If at that point the parties or some party says, whoops, if we can't use this unprecleared plan, then we've got to decide what's going to happen to the old plan. Uh, if, they, if they don't bring a complaint that the old plan is in fact unconstitutional, then I don't know why the old plan wouldn't be followed. If they do bring a complaint that the old plan is unconstitutional and the court so finds, then the court has got jurisdiction to make any kind of remedial order. Why isn't that the regime that we should assume? Well, Justice Souter, if I understand your question, I, I agree with you that it would not have been objectionable for the district court to simply say no further elections and uh, the judges that were elected either under the unprecleared plan that existed uh, or under the interim plan will simply remain in their post. Yeah, but I'm I, suggesting something more. I'm saying the court shouldn't have done anything more than that. Well, I think under it, certain... It should adjudicate what's in front of it. And if the only thing in front of it is a Section 5 claim, it should adjudicate it and stop. Before it goes any further, it ought to have another claim to adjudicate uh, in response to which it would have jurisdiction to grant relief. Well, ordinarily that would be correct, and I agree with you that in order to resolve this case uh, and uh, to order the outcome that the appellants seek, that's all this court would have to decide. Uh, my point is simply that there was a difficult circumstance presented to the district court here because of the jurisdiction's failure to obtain preclearance and the possibility that there might be an indefinite period in which no elections yeah, could That's not the court's problem. That's the jurisdiction's problem. Uh, all the court has to say is uh, this hasn't been precleared, period. Whereupon it's the problem of the jurisdiction to decide what they're going to do with these judges, continue them or come up with some other plan. But I don't know why it's the court's problem. Well, Justice Scalia, in the city of Rome, uh, this court held that, in fact, that the fallback remedy, essentially, under Section 5, is elections under the status quo anti-system. And as Justice Skin After a finding of violation. It, that's a remedy. Well, after there was a finding of a violation here, which was the failure to pre-clear elec an election system that was covered by Section 5. So there was, in fact, a violation. If I there was not a... I mean, a violation that the extant, uh, you know, the system in place, which someone is asking to be, uh, to be stricken down, is a violation. Are you referring to the 1994 interim plan, or... Which in this case, none. I mean, nobody was, uh, nobody was challenging any particular plan here. They were just challenging the pre-clearance. Well, I'd like to leave it with the fact that I think, Justice Souter, you're correct uh, that this court need not address that question uh, in order to reverse the decision. If I could address briefly the question but, of... What, what about the situation of the district judge? I mean, the fact that this wasn't pre-cleared, the district court bears some responsibility for that because the district judge kept insisting, I want you to come up with a plan that satisfies federal law and state law. Mm -hmm. Both parties said they couldn't. 
So the district judge really had something to do with why we have no pre-cleared anything. Well, Your Honor, that's true. And what I was about to address was the question of state law. I think Justice Souter in his earlier comment was quite correct that Section 5 covers attempts to enact or administer uh, voting changes within the covered jurisdiction. Uh, This court in the Sheffield case held that Section 5 coverage is uh, territorial and that uh, state laws as well as local laws cannot be enforced within the jurisdiction. Thank you, Mr. Jenkins. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Stone, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, uh, the questions posed to Mr. Jenkins and to Mr. Avila um, suggest what the state would have suggested independently, which is that the context of this proceeding is a very important focus, as well as the scope of a covered jurisdiction once it's determined by virtue of the statutory formula that a jurisdiction must seek preclearance of voting changes. The, the nature of this case, as Justice Souter has suggested, is a complaint for declaratory and injunctive relief. It's called a coverage case under Section 5, and the only inquiry in these cases is whether there is a covered jurisdiction. If so, whether that jurisdiction is enacting or seeking to administer a new change which it has initiated affecting voting rights. And then the third question is, did they first obtain the requisite preclearance? So in that sense, in our briefs, we use the word technical. I understand that that's a confusing, perhaps a misnomer. But it is a procedural question of whether or not they've done the requisite steps to get federal approval before implementing something that a covered jurisdiction has initiated. So uh, if, if it is established in the federal district court that preclearance was not obtained and that it's a covered jurisdiction, what, in your view, could the district court do beyond simply saying, hold everything, get preclearance? That, that is the common remedy. It's a declaration. That nothing more. Nothing more. On this complaint. Yeah, certainly on this complaint. Well, I, I take it hold everything means enjoin any further elections? Well, in Clark versus Roma, this court very strongly suggested that that may be the case. Well, what, what, what should have happened here in your view? Could the court simply say, I make a finding, a declaration that there has been no preclearance and that there should be no preclearance and stop there? Or must he further enjoin? Uh, elections under the unprecleared plan? In most cases, the, the elections must be enjoined. This, this what, court, what should have happened here, in it, your view? The, well, for several reasons, we don't believe the election should have been enjoined here. Uh, under Clark versus Romer, the, this court said that there may be extraordinary circumstances in which an injunction would not be appropriate. And it gave an example, which is one in which the uh, action was filed at the 11th hour. The election processes were already well advanced and that there were equitable reasons why the election should be permitted to go forward. Here, the the complaint was filed in 1991, and it was challenging 1968 through 1983 ordinances. Uh, In Clark, the court made the point that there was no showing that the plaintiffs were not diligent. Here, I suggest that quite the opposite fact is true. Furthermore, as the court has pointed out, there have been intervening state actions. The state is not a covered jurisdiction. And the state has, for one thing, the people, through an initiative measure, have eliminated justice courts altogether. The state has also enacted statutes, particularly Government Code Section 73560, which state, as a matter of state law, what the municipal court district is in Monterey County. And is it your position that the changes by the county pursuant to state, uh, state law, even if required by state law, need not be pre-cleared? 
Yes, the state the state is not. And how do you respond to the or administer language in the statute? Well, I believe that Justice Stevens, I believe that addresses informal as opposed to formal actions by a covered jurisdiction. The covered jurisdiction may initiate by promulgating a regulation if it's a county. So that in your view, even if Monterey County was covered, uh, if the state legislature enacted a whole bunch of changes that completely redesigned the jurisdiction in ways that were retrogressive, there'd be no no federal remedy except under Section 2. Exactly. There's always the remedy, uh, and several members of the court have suggested this, there's always the the, the remedy of proceeding under Section 2 or, or... so amendment. In, in any case of a covered jurisdiction which is less than statewide, the state legislature basically uh, can preclude any Section 5 action simply by enacting a new state statute, on your view. If the, it, the, the state can completely defeat the jurisdiction under Section 5 uh, and the preclearance requirement. Well, with respect, Justice Souter, I don't think it defeats the purpose of Section 5. Right. So if this, I'm, maybe I misunderstood you. I thought, if this, I thought your position was that if the state was not a covered jurisdiction and only a, some subdivision of the state was, that if the state enacted a statute uh, which changed the manner of election in the covered jurisdiction, it was not subject to preclearance. That, that is our position. Well, then I think it follows. I mean, that's, that's just an example of, of a general rule that in any case of a Section 5 jurisdiction, uh, the, the requirements of preclearance can simply be eliminated by the adoption by the state of a statute which changes the manner of election in the covered jurisdiction. I agree with that, too. I just took from the tone... There isn't much left of Section 5. Well, well, of course there is. The the, the citizens within the covered jurisdiction are still protected against any action of that identified jurisdiction. But the fact that another governmental entity has made some change within its sovereign power that uh, has some effect upon voting rights... Mr. Stone, when did that become, what you just described to us, when did that become California's position? Because... You correct me if I'm wrong about this. I thought that California had itself sought to pre-clear changes that would affect changes in, in state legislation that would affect covered counties. It's true that the Secretary of State's office for the state of California does submit uh, on occasion. I don't think it's absolutely every time, but it does submit regularly uh, state statutes and enactments uh, for preclearance. But this court has never held, and it's been our position throughout this case, to answer your question, that the state is not a covered jurisdiction, and therefore its enactments do not require preclearance. Even though the state has sought such preclearance when its enactments affect, will make a change in a covered jurisdiction. It has, Your Honor. The, the court is probably Oh, you're aware saying that, that uh, California has acted out of an excess of caution? Is that... You, that is exactly what has happened. And not based on its understanding of the law that it was required to seek preclearance when state law changes voting in a covered jurisdiction. There's a Department of Justice regulation. I believe it's uh, Section 51.23 of, of uh, 28 Code of Federal Regulations, which suggests that states have that requirement. And uh, in an abundance of caution, the Secretary of State's office has as a general matter, attempted to obtain preclearance. But this court has never held that such preclearance is required of an uncovered jurisdiction. And I would suggest that it's a very uh, great incursion into principles of federalism to do so. Well, Mr. Stone, I'm not sure that's even uh, an issue here. Uh, Was the Monterey County free to adopt 
uh, the plans that it did the, in, uh, at the time that it took the actions that it did? Yes, its various consolidation ordinances. It wasn't mandated by state law. No, state law permitted the counties to uh, adopt... It didn't require it. No, although there's some confusion on the record in that respect. The county, through its counsel in its initial motion to dismiss early on in the case before we were mm -hmm. uh, involved at all, mm -hmm. indicated that it required legislative permission in advance. And, and the but that's not your position here. I, th I think that's right, that the legislature... And so all of this other discussion about your views of state action and Section 5 is uh, not really at issue in this case. No, I believe they are, Justice O'Connor, because we, the state is now, as you know, a defendant party. It was made a party for the first time as part of the order that's now on appeal here. And we have argued that because the countywide elections are conducted pursuant to state law, that there's no place for a Section 5 proceeding here. The reason being that it, it, when the court in well, South Carolina... to the extent that what was challenged here in the complaint was a failure to pre-clear a change in uh, Monterey County's municipal and justice court setup, uh, that change, you say, was not mandated by state law. And to the extent we look at that, I assume that the court would just determine whether it was or wasn't, and if it wasn't, would order free clearance. Oh, I, I see, Your Honor. Why do we get into all this other stuff? I misunderstood your question. I, at the time the ordinances were passed, the county had the discretion right. to design the district. And wasn't that time. what the complaint alleged? I mean, that's all that was before it. But, but at the time the lawsuit was filed, there was on the books a state statute indicating that the Monterey County Municipal Court District is the entirety of Monterey County. It's Section 73560 of the Government Code. And there was this change in the state's constitution, Article 6, Section 5, which said that there may no longer be statewide. But that wasn't what the complaint challenged. No, but the point is that at the time they filed it, 20 years after the first of these ordinances, things had changed considerably, and the state during that intervening period had dictated what the Monterey County Municipal Court right, so, so why doesn't that go to the merits? I mean, what I can't understand about this case is why has it taken five years? You didn't preclude that, pre-clear the initial matter. So you have to pre-clear it. So why doesn't the state go to the D.C. Circuit, and they would make their argument, which says because of all the factors you bring up, that these single, this, this single unity and the change in all the judges does not abridge anyone's right. It does not have the effect to abridge rights to vote on the grounds of race. And they would argue because of the change in the single district, member district, it does. And then we would have the D.C. Circuit decide all this, take into account your arguments, which are excellent, and their arguments, which are excellent. And, and, uh, and then we would get a decision as to whether or not a state does abridge Be because rights on the basis of race under the circumstances that you outline in your brief? Our arguments go to whether preclearance is required. They go, first of all, to whether a, a statute enacted by a jurisdiction that has not come within the covered formula is nevertheless subject to preclearance. Right, so if you disagree that it's not subject to preclearance, right. why don't you appeal the district court's judges to the contrary to the Ninth Circuit? The, the issue is still open in the district court. The district court's order that is under appeal here specifically says, now that the state has been made a defendant on this day, November 1, 1995, it shall have the opportunity to raise defenses. And why the... isn't it up to the district court, under ordinary precedent, to enjoin all elections 
until it decides that matter, at which point, if you lose, you will have to go to the D.C. Circuit, and if you win, you won't. But Clark says this is an ordinary kind of thing. Uh, when one side says it is pretty clear, the other doesn't, you keep the status quo, freeze everything until the district court decides, and it should decide. That, Your Honor, that would have been fine. Uh, we would dispute that an injunction should be put into effect until the court is certain that there is, in fact, a preclearance requirement that was not met. That remains an open question. Uh, as the court said in its November order, the state may have this case dismissed on the basis that preclearance is not required. But, but your point, Your Honor, about the status quo is very important because had the plaintiffs and the Department of Justice been content to have an injunction preventing these countywide elections pending preclearance, that would have been fine. That would have been what Clark says to do. They instead urged the court, and the court ultimately uh, did their bidding, to fashion a new right, but order. We say bygones are bygones. We cannot. Whatever happened in the past, now proceed according to Clark. No, as Justice O'Connor po pointed out, this proceeding is simply to determine whether an enactment is subject to preclearance. Preclearance encompasses not just uh, enactments that harm minority voting rights, it encompasses neutral enactments, and it encompasses enactments that greatly enhance minority rights. Any of those kinds of actions have to be pre-cleared before they can be implemented. So at this point, the mere fact that the court found that this uh, consolidation had to be pre-cleared says nothing about whether there's any substantive harm. And because there's no substantive harm yet proven or established, and because, as Justice Souter pointed out, there's no constitutional or Section 2 challenge filed, there's no parallel case as there was in Allen and Clark and Morse, where the constitutionality of the practices are being challenged, there is, the court has no basis upon which to fashion any remedial order. Well, is that quite true? Isn't it true that the county, when it dismissed its, its objection, the, the D.C. Circuit action, uh, in effect stipulated that they could not demonstrate that there was no retrogression? Yes, they stipulated that they were Which unable to... at least gives the, the, the district court a, a colorable basis for assuming there ought to be some interim remedy until they get pre-planned. Well, I'm not sure it does, Justice Stevens, because the district court, this court has held in defining the different kinds of actions that may be brought under the Voting Rights Act, it has specifically said that a coverage case such as this, where the only question is coverage, has no jurisdiction to determine either retrogression, which is expressly limited to the District of Columbia Court, or constitutional violations. They're all beside the point. When you say stipulate, Mr. Stone, was there a, the, what you would think of as a technical stipulation filed in the district court uh, which stated what you said it stated? As, as part of these interim orders that they urged the court to, uh, to order, to direct, the, the parties stipulated, not, not the state certainly, but the parties then existent stipulated that uh, the county was unable to establish that the ordinances, that several of the ordinances, it wasn't specific, uh, were not retrogressive in that they may have had... The, the, the part of the, they stipulated that they couldn't bear the burden of proof of proving they were not retrogressive. Uh, yes, of proving that several of them were not. And that was all they stipulated. There was no... I mean, normally in the District of Columbia Court, if there's a determination of retrogression, the court gives some guidance about what it is that's a problem and perhaps how it can be remedied. Here we don't know which, if any, consolidated is, is it not also relevant that the, the interim remedy put into effect in December of 1994 was pre-cleared? That is irrelevant, Your Honor. That's irrelevant. Yes. Well, may I get clear on, I guess, a, a further point there that, that, that is raised both by your answer to Justice Stevens and your answer to Justice Breyer? In an action like this, in which the issue is whether preclearance is required and whether, if so, uh, uh, it has been obtained, and the court concludes that it is required and it hasn't been obtained, uh, 
is it your position that the court can enjoin uh, the an, an election under the unprecleared plan? Yes. Okay. Uh, and that's the normal remedy. I believe that's and, what and the that's the extent. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, Period. Absent extraordinary circumstances, that seems to be the limits of this coverage case court's remedial authority. Now, here in particular, we would argue that the court did not need to enjoin then, for one thing, uh, as we say, this, the question of whether preclearance was required is now reopened because the state is now a defendant and can argue that the state is not subject to preclearance and that these elections are conducted pursuant to state law at this late date. Secondly, the Clark says that there may be extraordinary circumstances which could come into play. As we pointed out, there was no diligence here. The process, not in the sense that it was at the 11th hour and the primaries were going to be held the next day, but in the sense that the state has, since these ordinances, dictated how municipal court elections shall be conducted. Uh, those have come to play. Secondly... Well, how is that relevant? Because the state may, might not have uh, uh, made this disposition with respect to this county if it had known that it was under attack. No, no it's relevant because a non-covered jurisdiction has some substantial say, if not dispositive say, in the elections as they're no, not I'm trying conducted. To I, I'm trying to uh, connect that to the uh, lack of due diligence that you were referring to. Well, it's the fact that they waited 20 years permitted a great deal of time uh, in which the state took several actions with respect to justice and municipal courts in Monterey County. So their diligence, in, uh, had they filed this action immediately after passage of the first ordinance or the second or the third and, and taken issue with it at the time, then the injunction would have been against the county, I suppose, at least much more clearly. Now, the state has developed law, including the initiative voted by the entire population of the state, to eliminate justice courts, and that is in the mix. Uh, w one point to be made about how much the state is involved here is to look at the remedy which they have sought here. They didn't seek an injunction that would put the status quo, that is the 1968 system, back in effect. They sought a, an affirmative remedial order by the court, which, among other things, annulled or suspended state laws. It annulled or suspended... Yes, yes but the interim remedy did accommodate the state interest in having countywide jurisdiction. I mean, they were trying to... Uh, accommodate some of the state interest in the particular remedy they selected, didn't they? Actually, Your Honor, the, the state interest is not in having countywide jurisdiction. Mr. Avila was correct that there are municipal courts that are less than the county, but the underlying state interest is very much that every voting citizen within a judicial district is entitled to vote for the judges of that district, and that was thrown out the window by the interim plan. Similarly, there's a state interest, constitutional in nature, that no city shall be split in a municipal court district. That was thrown out the window. Well, but only in the, for election purposes, not for jurisdictional purposes. The interim remedy is countywide for jurisdictional purposes as opposed to election purposes. Well, but, that, but that's even worse, Your Honor, than dividing it into... It's almost as bad as letting a judge be assigned to another district. It's almost that bad. It's... <laughs> At least that's what the district court said. Yes, and we, of course, disagree to the extent that it belittled the state's interest. But the point is there are constitutional, constitutional provisions that were in existence before even Monterey County became a covered jurisdiction. These are 1966, uh, the, the most recent enactments of Article 6, Section 5 and Article 6, Section 16, are 1966. Even if the state were a covered jurisdiction, a coverage question would have to find that those enactments are not subject. Mr. Stone, can I interrupt your presentation for one, one moment? Because I, I understand you're making arguments that really haven't been decided on by the district court. To, to what extent does your position rest on the reason given by the district court for the action that's being challenged, namely that it was concerned that Miller, which was decided some uh, six months after the interim remedy went into effect, cast constitutional doubt on the interim remedy? Is that... 
essential to, uh, do you think that, that reason was acceptable, let me put it that way? That, that, yes, Justice Stevens, that in combination with the fact that the interim remedy, and I always put it in quotes, was issued in the first place. Because I believe that Miller... But that's not why the, the district court set its own remedy aside. They set it aside entirely, as I understand, on the basis of Miller. Well, that's correct. On the basis that it was, that substantial questions about its constitutionality right. came into play. And my question is, do you think that was a proper way to decide that issue without first deciding whether there was a Miller violation? Well, the court didn't say there was a Miller violation, no. but, but I don't see how it could come to any other conclusion, Your Honor. But let me say that the mix, what we've been talking about is a normal Section 5 coverage case where the only question is whether a, a statute, enactment, or informal something that a covered jurisdiction seeks to administer requires preclearance and hasn't yet had it. But when the court decided, it was very ill-advised, it was, we believe, beyond its jurisdiction, but it decided to redesign, reconfigure the county court system in Monterey uh, and to suspend or annul state laws and state constitutional provisions, it then had another order, and that changed the mix entirely, and we, we submit that the court then had jurisdiction to correct its own error, to eliminate this unconstitutional or substantially unconstitutional order, and to put things back where there, where there were. The court was trying to return to the status quo. That's why, we believe, it ordered that there be a one-time countywide election, because when the case first came to this court, the judges... On, on the Monterey County Municipal Court had been elected countywide. The court changed that. It changed it in a race-based fashion that it was inappropriate to do. And the court's November order points out, we don't accept their rec retrogression stipulation, meaning we now recognize that that's not our domain. It's for the district court in the District of Columbia. And we're not the Section 2 court, meaning all these stipulations about... Don't the you think that the reason the district judge thought Miller invalidated the plan, or its interim plan, was because the district judge thought that any reliance on race in fashioning the uh, districting would be invalid. It, the, the district court did say that uh, that Miller draws into question whether any reliance on race may be invalid, but it, it didn't so, need to go that far. Do you think it's up to us to decide whether the district court correctly or incorrectly construed Miller? Your Honor, I think that the, the sentence that the court that you're citing in the court's decision is certainly subject to some uh, scrutiny and clarification. But that was not necessary to the court's decision here. The, in normal cases, including Miller and Shaw, the court asks about the constitutionality of districting in a context where districting is the normal procedure and there are normal districting principles, the decennial reapportionments, for instance. In this case, the traditional districting principle, as far as dividing any judicial district in California, is we don't do it. We do not do it. Your position here, Mr. Stone, is that you are satisfied with the November 1995 interlocutory injunction, and you ask that the district court's judgment be affirmed? Yes. My point is that the traditional districting principles, as that phrase is normally used in decennial reapportionments, doesn't apply here. The districting principles that apply here, districts are designed for administrative convenience in the, in the justice courts. So the notion of it, maybe, maybe in a hearing they could prove that it was contiguous, so what? It seems to me that affirmance is inconsistent with your basic argument here, which is that all the court could do was order free clearance. I mean, how could we affirm? Well, only, I mean, it, the petitioners asked the court to do things that it couldn't or shouldn't do, and the court went along with it, and you want us to affirm it. And it looks to me like, to be consistent with your view, we'd have to reverse or vacate and send it back and say the only thing on this complaint you could do is order preclearance. 
Except, Your Honor, that I think that the court's most recent order, the November order, was an attempt to correct what it, what it had it had unfortunately messed up initially. The, the court should not have issued the December 1994 order, which injected race, divided the county. It gave 10% of the voters within a judicial district the right and power to elect a judge that was sitting over the whole well, district. It was if, if, we rever- if we should reverse the November 1995 order, that wouldn't necessarily mean approval of the December 1994 order, would it? Well, but that would then be the status quo as, as the court has used it. That would be what was left. That's the trouble. The court's effort was to correct that and bring things back the way they were initially. I think that was laudable. But you would be free to advance all the arguments you've been making here, including the unconstitutionality of that remedy, because those haven't really been ruled on. Is that not right? Well, the the court has not expressly stated that its remedy, its 94 remedy, was unconstitutional. But as I started to point out, the only purpose for the dividing of this district was race. Yes, I know. If, if, if that establishes unconstitutional, it's an easy issue to decide. Surely he'll set aside the order if it's unconstitutional. But he just hasn't so held, or they haven't so held. There are three judges, I should say. I, I think I'm right on that, isn't it? You still can make the argument. You still may win on this very ground. But that ruling has not yet been made. Well, and at this point, it would be moot, except for the extension of terms, because the, the, the court was obviously uncomfortable with its remedy in the first place. If it would be moot, then your answer, then, then you're not standing by, I think you're not standing by the answer you gave a moment ago, that if all we do uh, is, is, is conclude here that he should have enjoined the use of the, uh, of the plan that he adopted, that that would restore a status quo ante, and the status quo ante was unconstitutional. I think you're now saying it wouldn't restore the status quo ante. No, it would, because the court has extended the terms. But the court... Oh, because of the court's extension. But all right. Well, then, then, then isn't Justice Stevens correct in his suggestion that all you have to do uh, if the case goes back in that posture uh, is, is to file an appropriate pleading saying this, this status quo ante is unconstitutional? And, 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 and you, should, uh, you, should, you should vacate any order of the court uh, that establishes it. You, you're, that's open to you. Well, it? when the court held its hearing on Miller, that was the question it wanted to address. Yeah, and, 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 that's the question, and, and that's the question that you can litigate if it goes back in the posture that Justice Stevens and, and I are suggesting. Well, that's, that's true, Your Honor, although in the meantime, the, the results of that unconstitutional... That is yet that. another issue. That is yet another issue. But you can litigate your Miller claim, can't you? If it goes back. Yes. Yeah. But on, on the same token, on these facts, this court, it seems to me, could very quickly and easily find that under Miller, that well, is not We don't, I, I don't know uh, what procedural basis we have to be deciding a Miller claim either. Well, we don't even have a map in the record, I don't think. You, uh, well, actually, I did submit a map which it, shows that there's no... I couldn't no, find it. One of the lawyers said it was based on race. How is the Miller question even right if we don't know whether the change needs to be pre-cleared and we don't know the view of the Attorney General or the D.C. Circuit whether there's any retrogression involved in the countywide system? How, How do you even get to the Miller, which would be something else in place of the system that's been found retrogressive. Well, the, the principal reason that you know Miller should, should annul this interim remedy of December 94 is the, the point made by Justice O'Connor, that no substantive harm to voting rights has been established. So any remedy that brings race in at all, any remedy at all, is inappropriate from this but suppose, court. Let's just suppose 
the D.C. Circuit finds can't have this change because it's retrogressive. Then what? If if that's what the D.C. Circuit finds, how can you counter the retrogression? Retrogression necessarily involves race without saying, I have to remedy that impact on race. That's what I, I don't follow. Well, that's, it would be a very different case if this were in the district court and if retrogression, a substantive violation, had been determined. Then the court would have... Op- we never even have empowered the right decision maker because it's been frozen in, as I understand it, in the, in the district court within the Ninth Circuit that doesn't have the authority to make that retrogression determination. Well, it's correct that it hasn't yet gotten to any court in which substantive harm can be determined. Thank you, Mr. Stone. Thank you. Mr. Avila, you have a minute remaining. I would like to refer the court uh, to Connor versus Waller as providing uh, authority for the issuance of injunctive relief and additional relief beyond merely the issuance of a, of a permanent injunction. Uh, I would also like to point out that, um, at least in, uh, in previously in, in this court in Shaw, um, uh, the state um, uh, is not entirely covered under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and only several counties, but yet when the state enacts a redistricting plan that affects those counties, uh, those uh, plans that directly affect those counties have to be pre-cleared. And uh, with respect to the remedy, we are urging uh, this court to uh, reverse the district court's use of the unprecleared election change and so that the court can then conduct whatever evidentiary hearing needs to be conducted in order to determine what should be the appropriate remedy. And the reason why we have to go beyond the injunction is because there has been, uh, we have to correct the previous effects of elections that were conducted under an unprecleared election system. And that was what the temporary plan did. We have had election systems since 1968 up to the time that the complaint was filed, conducted under an unprecleared election system. Thank you, Mr. Avila. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.